Well, the saying goes, our eyes are the window into our souls. Uh, the idea is that when you look someone into the eyes, uh, you can see what they're, what they're really like. Now, uh, as you can see on the screen, there's a good example of that from the recent uh, Star Wars movie. Uh, there's a stormtrooper uh, and, uh, who at the beginning of the movie defects from the First Order. They're the bad guys, by the way. And he claims to be now on the side of the Resistance, who are the good guys. Uh, in the movie, and this guy Finn is brought before this uh, funny alien creature, as you can see, with the, with the massive eyeballs, and she looks into his eyes to see the truth about this man. She sees his fear, she sees his past, she knows exactly who he is. Well, now, our topic this morning is, is giving, and the main point of our passage really is that it's not our eyes that are the window into our souls, but our wallets and our purses. What our passage wants us to understand is that, is that God's grace, the undeserved gift of his son, uh, as he sent Jesus to, to die for us, lies at the very heart of the gospel. Uh, and so one of the major tests of whether we have actually grasped the gospel or not is whether we respond to the grace of God by exhibiting the same kind of grace in overflowing generosity towards other people. In other words, your bank statement is a key indicator of your spiritual health. Or the church budget, if you like, is a good indicator of the spiritual health of a church. Because there's a connection, you see, between our generosity and our hearts. You can look at what someone does with their money and you can have a very good idea of where they're at in the Christian life. The saying goes, of course, the last part of the Christian to be converted is their wallets. Well, here is the main point today. Uh, Christians ought to respond to the grace of God with joyful, generous, and sacrificial giving. Uh, we're up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, we come to the second major section of this letter. Uh, chapters 1 to 7 was the first major section, and there Paul has been defending his apostolic ministry. Uh, there's these super apostles that have turned up to Corinth, and they've been preaching a different Jesus, and a different gospel, and a different spirit, and uh, some of the Corinthians have been lured in by this false message. Uh, they're tempted to look at Paul and say, well, here's this weak, unimpressive, powerless uh, apostle. And, and in response to that, Paul has been trying to show that his gospel is the real gospel and that his ministry is the real ministry. He's been seeking for reconciliation with the Corinthian church. And if you were here last week as we read chapter 7, uh, you would have seen that the news was good. Uh, the Corinthians had turned back to Paul. They had repented. Uh, and so it's a bit of a sudden shift now as we uh, come to chapter 8. We suddenly move from all of this defense of his ministry and now we suddenly plonk and here is this topic of, of giving. Uh, it's so much so that uh, some people think that well, maybe this is a completely different letter that has just been uh, tapped on here. Uh, now I think they haven't understood 2 Corinthians. Uh, but Paul speaks here in these two chapters of a collection that he's going to take uh, amongst the Gentile churches that he's planted to bring and give to the poor Christians that are in Jerusalem. Uh, many of the, the Jerusalem Christians are in great poverty. 
Uh, it's partly because uh, many of them had converted and faced persecution. And uh, we read that in the book of Acts. Uh, and that, that poverty had been exa exacerbated by a great famine uh, that had been in Jerusalem. And so Paul's plan basically is to take up a collection uh, from amongst these Gentile churches and bring it to Jerusalem to help these poor Christians. Uh, Paul mentions this at the end of the book of, of Romans. Uh, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. And, and so this, this collection is meant to be a, a sign of, 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 of unity between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. Uh, and that uh, collection is mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. Basically, the Corinthians have signed up to this deal. They've already begun uh, collecting money. Uh, that is, until uh, the whole project had been thrown into jeopardy with these super apostles turning up. Uh, it seems as though with the, all this tension and fighting between the Corinthians and with Paul, that, that things had just been getting worse. And as you read through 2 Corinthians, it's quite possible uh, that one of the main accusations against Paul was that he was coming as their apostle in order to take their money. Now, I tell you all of that because I want us to appreciate here the boldness of the apostle Paul. You'd expect, isn't it, they've finally been able to make up with each other. Maybe they'd move on to a friendly topic. But instead, he changes to the topic of money, which we all know is the last taboo of society. <laughs> now, here's the reason, I think. This collection is a test for the Corinthian Christians. Are they really reconciled to Paul or not? Do they, are they really going to accept Paul as their apostle or not? Well, if they are going to accept him, then they're going to show it with their wallets by getting out their money and giving to this collection. Because you see, what you do with your money, isn't it, is a very strong indicator of what is going on in your heart. And so as we uh, work through these verses uh, this morning, I think what we're doing is exactly the same thing. We're, 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 we're holding up our own hearts against this test. Have we really embraced the gospel of grace? Has it, has it transformed our hearts such that we bring forth this generosity and this overflowing giving? Or have we not been changed yet at all? Well, four points this morning. The model, the challenge, the motivation, and the principles. First point in uh, verses 1 to 5, the model. Uh, here Paul holds up to them the, the example of the Macedonian Christians. Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Uh, Paul wants to hold up uh, the standard of generous giving as these Macedonian Christians. And that's a staggering example, isn't it? I mean, you would normally expect the rich to be generous and not the poor, but these Macedonian Christians, they are absolutely outstanding, aren't they? Are they not? 
At, at the time, they are in extreme poverty, we're told. They're, they're being afflicted, and yet they are wealthy in their generosity. Now, the churches in Macedonia are in the, the northern part of, of Turkey. It includes places like Thessalonica and, and Philippi, which you can read of. Uh, the northern part is kind of like the poor part right, of, of that country. Corinth is the harbour city. It's the rich port city. And so we have the comparison here. There's these poor, persecuted, impoverished cities at the top. Generous. What are the Corinthians going to do? Now we read of the kind of persecution these, ch these churches face in, in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, for the Thessalonians, Jason, who hosted the church, is dragged by a mob uh, and brought before the, before the authorities. In Philippi, when Paul goes there, he's, he's jailed, of course, and flogged. And when he leaves, they continue to persecute the Christians there uh, as well. And if you read on in the letters in Thessalonians and Philipp Philippians, you will see that the, the persecution only continued there. And so despite their, this intense suffering, despite their extreme poverty, they gave generously and sacrificially to people thousands of kilometres away that they had never met. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Reminds me of a, of a missionary that I know working here uh, in Malaysia. Uh, their house is run down. Uh, they drive an old uh, proton. And yet, uh, recently they made a sizable contribution to one of the gospel ministries here in Malaysia. Incredibly generous. And I suspect in this crowd there are those kind of generous people amongst us as well. And it is a, it is a model and it is an example to be commended. Now, the Macedonian Christians, you see, they, they not only gave generously here, they actually gave sacrificially. Have a look at verse 3. Paul writes, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. Uh, they gave beyond. Remember, they're in a situation of extreme poverty here, and yet they're overwhelming in their generosity. It's, it's, I think it's a bit like if you imagine a Nepali migrant worker or something like that. Maybe they get a, a salary of 1,000 ringgit a month or something like that. Putting in, coming to church, putting 200 ringgit in the box for mission work in Africa. Uh, you see, the, the true measure of, of generosity, of sacrifice, is not in the amount that you give but the situation in which you give it. I remember some years ago meeting a Christian brother from, uh, from Zimbabwe, and as you know, the, the, the inflation there was something like 10,000%, so the, uh, your money was, was worthless, basically. Uh, and so they still wanted to be generous uh, Christians, so when it came to church on Sunday and they were taking up the offering, they didn't bring their money because that was worthless. They brought their cows. They brought their wheat to donate to the church. That's, that's sacrificial generosity, isn't it? The Macedonians gave when it hurt. They gave beyond their means. Their self-sacrifice, I suspect, wasn't just that they couldn't buy a new you know, iPhone 7 when it comes out this year. Perhaps they went without food so that they could give to the other Christians who needed the money. Now, not only were these Christians generous and sacrificial, perhaps the most remarkable thing about them was their, was their joy. Did you see that? Uh, verse 2, their, their giving was an overflow of the abundance of their joy. Uh, and verse 4 puts it even stronger. Verse 4, 
they begged us earnestly for the favor or grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's, it's not as if uh, Paul went to the churches in Macedonia and he, he was kind of using his apostolic authority to twist their arms, you know, they're poor, he's going to bend them into submission and take their money for the, for the Jerusalem Christians. It's not like that. He didn't, he probably didn't expect them to give money at all given their situation. But what did they do? They, they begged him, Paul, let us in, let us give to this, to this project. I wonder when was the last uh, time any of us here uh, begged to be able to give. Begged that we might go without a meal so that we could give money to someone in need. Of course, it's usually the other way around, isn't it? It's usually the uh, unfortunate member of the stewardship committee who's got to come up here and say, look, our church finances is not good and kind of beg and plead, can you please be more generous to us? It's usually like that, isn't it? these Christians beg, let us give. Let us give more. But one last remarkable feature of their giving is why they did it. Have a look at verse 5. Paul says, this was not as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, it would have been easy, I guess, for them to give the money in order to keep Paul happy, do you see? But that wasn't what they did, actually. Their generosity flowed first and foremost as an expression of their love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they gave generously and sacrificially and joyfully because of their love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable model, isn't it? It's a remarkable standard for Paul to, to hold up before us. Now, I wonder if, uh, like me, you, you think, well, how, how can they actually do this? This is, this is radical, is it not? Well, have a look in verse 1. I think we find the answer there. Look how Paul introduces. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What an intriguing description. Their generosity was generated by God's generosity to them. Their giving in this sacrificial, generous, joyful manner was actually a, a gift of God. In fact, as you, you look through this passage, you'll see this word grace is everywhere. It's there in verse 4. They begged us to in, uh, take part in this grace. It's there in verse 7. It's there in verse 9. It's all the way through. In fact, if you skip right down to the last verse of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 15... Uh, it's there in verse 14 as well. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, his grace. Beginning and end of, these of this section, grace. What we're meant to see here is that giving, the ability to give, is a gift of God. To be able to give, is a privilege given by God as a response to God's grace towards us. Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that in this uh, very long passage on giving, Paul never mentions tithing, isn't it? He doesn't uh, say to, the Christian, uh, to these uh, Corinthians, as he could say, uh, look, I'm taking up this collection, make sure you give your 10%, right? Uh, you know you owe the church 10%, make sure it's there. He could do that, isn't it? if he believed in tithing. 
But that's not what he does, is it? What he does is says, look, look at the voluntary, joyful, generous, sacrificial example of the, of the, of the Macedonians. Now, look at the privilege of being able to give. Now, I suspect this uh, radically cha uh, challenges our, our attitude towards giving in church. I wonder how you view uh, giving, uh, a burden maybe, uh, an obligation, uh, a rule that you need to follow to be a good Christian. Well, if that is our attitude to giving, then it is well and truly possible that we have not really understood the gospel of grace. Because the gospel of grace produces people of grace, people who are joyful and generous and sacrificial in their giving. Well, that's the model. I wonder how we're going against their standard. Uh, in point two, Paul moves to, to the challenge to these Corinthian Christians. Pick it up with verse 6. Paul says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should compete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, notice again how Paul doesn't shy away from telling the Corinthians to give money. Uh, uh, if, the, if the poor and afflicted Macedonian Christians are are, are able to give so joyfully and willingly and, and sacrificially, then, then Paul expects how much more should these Corinthian Christians be able to, to do it who are living in this rich port, uh, port city? Uh, uh, it, it, it's easy, isn't it, for churches to fall into one of two extremes. Either they, they talk about money all the time, you'll have the sermon and the pe preacher will sit down and then you get up for the second sermon, which is all about giving and it's twice as long. Other churches will go the opposite, isn't it? And then and we'll never talk about giving, ever, uh, because we're afraid to talk about money. But that's not Paul, is it? He's happy to, to look them in the eye, to talk to them about their giving. Now, it's interesting how Paul points out here how they excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness. They were a gifted church, but as the problem, as Paul alludes to again here, is that actually they were missing the thing that mattered the most, really, uh, love. Uh, notice Paul doesn't say here, and in your love for us. That's what we're expecting, isn't it? I think that's why the Bible readers stumbled on it. That's what we expect to have it here. He says, but in our love for you, because... Well, love was sadly absent from these Corinthian Christians. Yes, they had the knowledge. Yes, they had the speech. Yes, they had the faith. But they were using it all to boast about how good and superior and wonderful and powerful and eloquent they were. And Paul's already addressed this issue back in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Let me, as I read it out, see if you can see the link here uh, up on the screen. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic uh, powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Yes, they had faith. Yes, they had knowledge. Yes, they had, had speech. But, but where was the love? And so Paul urges them, 
excel in the grace of giving. If the Macedonians can give so sacrificially and joyfully and generously in the midst of such difficult circumstances, how much more should you who have wealth and are not facing those kind of trials? And so I guess as we hold up the, the example of the Macedonians, we probably will feel the same challenge for ourselves as, as well. Uh, I hope that we will not only attend our doctrine seminars and Bible study groups and Tuesday night training and all of these things to grow in our knowledge and our faith and our speech uh, and so on. May we not only do that, but make sure that we excel in the grace of giving as well. Now, I've mentioned uh, uh, many times before, I, I don't get paid by St. Mary's. I have a, uh, a generous bunch of uh, supporters back in Australia who uh, provide for us so that I can be here. So I'm, I'm free to speak about church finances because I have no uh, benefit from it at all. And so perhaps it's a good time for us for me to remind you that we are in a deficit as, as a church here at St. Mary's. Now, how wonderful it would be if we could give generously towards us. Because actually a significant part of the budget does go to, to many groups that are in need. There's like our Nepali congregation who are very, very poor, the Feeding the Needy ministry, many, many more. We could go on and on all day. How much more could we do if we were generous towards it? Now I know many of us are generous here and I, I want to commend you in that and, uh, and thank you so much uh, for that. But individually and let us, as a church, let us seek to excel in this grace and give to those that are in need, even perhaps those that we haven't even met before. So we've seen the model, we've seen the challenge, and now Paul turns to the motivation, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. See, actually, Paul could have commanded them to give the money, isn't it? He's an apostle of Jesus. It's a, something that they should be doing as Christians. He could have commanded them to do it. But notice he doesn't choose to do that here, does he? Because he wants their generosity not to stem from some, some legal obedience to some uh, external rule. He wants this generosity to be an overflow of the heart a response to the gospel. Uh, of course, I think that's one of the, the problems with, with tithing. It's, it, it, it's so easy, isn't it, for it to just become kind of an obligation, a rule that I just need to, to follow out. And it's no longer about my heart, about my response of grace. And so instead of commanding, Paul points instead to the ultimate example of self-giving love that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse uh, 9 with me. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, that, that is a, a, a theologically packed statement, isn't it? Christ was rich. He enjoyed the glories of heaven for all eternity. What did he do? He made himself poor. He, he left heaven. He took on human flesh. 
He was born in a manger in his ministry. He had no house of his own, nowhere to lay his head, no possessions but the, the clothes that he, that he was to wear. That was not all, of course. He emptied himself further. He, he endured rejection and ridicule, suffering, betrayal, and ultimately the agony of, of Gethsemane and the cross for us. Jesus' incarnation and his death is the perfect example of self-giving love. And Jesus, in his grace, gave everything for sinners like you and me. Uh, Earlier in the letter, Paul puts it this way. He, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Through Jesus' poverty, we're told here, he did it so that he would make us rich. Now, of of course, Paul doesn't mean here physical riches. You'll see, you'll find some church pastors out there who will latch on to this verse. Look, Jesus died to make you rich. He's going to give you a Mercedes Benz and a house and a, a money bag and all the rest of it. That's not the point here, right? He's talking about spiritual riches. Through his death, Jesus' death for you and me, God is able to make sinners who deserve his judgment right with him, to forgive them, to cleanse them, to give them his spirit, to to assure them of of a glorious eternal inheritance where we will dwell with God in his kingdom forever. Uh, These are very familiar truths, aren't they, that we we tread over every single Sunday. And I I, I don't want the gravity of them to to pass us by yet again. These verses are saying Christ loved us. Unworthy you and me, he loved us. He knows all our faults. He knows all of our sins. And he gave, well, everything. Everything. For us. There was nothing he held back from us as he, as he hung there on the cross. Even his clothes were stripped from him as he was, as he was mocked and crucified. Now, if we've really grasped the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to, it ought to bring us to our knees, really, isn't it? It ought to fill our hearts with an immense joy. It ought to be life-changing, really. It ought to make us able to do nothing else but imitate his self-giving love in the way that we treat other people. The motivation for generous giving is not some rule or regulation. It's looking at Jesus, looking at his death for you. And so once again in verses 10 to 15, Paul urges his readers to respond to the grace of God in radical, joyful, sacrificial giving for the glory of God. And as he does that, he's going to spell out three principles here for us to keep in mind. The first one is uh, there in verse 10. Readiness is, is what matters and not the amount. Read with me from verse 10. 
And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago not only started to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, the Corinthians had actually started well. Uh, they'd, a year ago, they'd, they'd begun collecting. Week by week, they set aside their amounts uh, for this church, uh, Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, but we're reminded here uh, that the readiness to give must be accompanied by the completion of it. It's, it's not... It's not just about having the intention, is it? It's about actually carrying through on it. It's all well and good to draw up a budget. I'm going to give this much to church. But if I don't actually do anything about it, then the intention is, is, is worthless in the end. But what we're also reminded here is uh, if the readiness is there, that is the important thing, not the actual amount that we give. Uh, God looks not at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And when the readiness is there, God, God sees it as acceptable. It's pleasing to him regardless of the amount. Uh, and so, for example, it, it, it doesn't matter, I guess, if you're here today as a student and you don't have any uh, or much uh, income at all. Perhaps you're, you're, all you're able to afford is to put 10 ringgit a month right, in, in, in the collection box. It's not the amount that is, that is important. It's the, it's the heart that is willing to give. And experience shows if, you, if you're not going to give as a student 10 ringgit a month, well then when you've got 10,000 a month, you probably will not give much more than that either. Of course, as we've seen here, uh, you might choose to give beyond your circumstances. So the Macedonians certainly did that, and that was extremely pleasing uh, in God's sight. But it is your desire that matters, your, your heart that matters, not the amount that you have written on the check, do you see? God cares that we are generous. He doesn't care how many zeros is on there. Of course, it's possible if you are earning a lot of money to have many zeros on the end and not be generous at all. God sees that as well. Readiness is what matters, not the amount. The second principle is there in verse 13, and that is the issue of, of fairness. Paul writes in uh, verse 13, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, so that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. So the goal of Christian living, uh, as Paul explains here, is not to make the rich people into the poor people, right, and the poor people into the rich people. That, that, that doesn't change the situation at all, does it? Uh, the idea here is, is fairness. And the principle that is lying behind this uh, is that we are actually interconnected as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as, as fellow believers in the family of God, we're meant to provide for, for one another. Now, all too often I uh, see Christians thinking very, very individualistically, uh, not only in Australia, but here in Malaysia as well. Uh, how do I see that? Well, we think, well, I need to have a certain amount of money in the bank, don't I? 
Uh, I need to make sure I've got enough money for a rainy day for my retirement, for my medical insurance, uh, just in case I, I need that operation that I need to, need to pay for. And, and of course, there, there's, there's some wisdom in that, isn't it? Uh, but the reality is, we're not meant to be self-sufficient people, are we? Saving up large amounts of money in my bank account for a rainy day. That's actually not God's plan of how it works in church. Why do I do that? Storing up those large amounts for the rainy day? It's because I, I think, number one, maybe God won't supply my needs. And number two, maybe the other fellow Christians won't supply my needs or I don't want them to. But what is intended here is, is mutual sacrifice, mutual giving, so that when I'm in need, you, whoever has the surplus, will provide for my need. And when I'm doing well and you're in need, I will provide your need. I, I don't need to have a massive bank account because I live in a church where there are other people who have surplus when I don't, do you see? We're meant to be interconnected. And so with that in mind, let me just speak for a moment for those of us here that are perhaps a little bit more uh, well off uh, at the moment uh, compared to other, other people here. I guess that means you own a car, uh, your own house perhaps, maybe you've done some renovations recently, uh, bought a new iPhone 7. That's probably you, right, if you've done any of those things. Well, if God has blessed you with all of those resources, that's a wonderful thing. He's actually given you a gift. But it's not a gift that's meant to be used for yourself, do you see? God has given you a gift to be able to give to others. And so, if that is you, well, when there's a chance for the next Smago camp that comes up or Tuesday night training and you're, you're filling out your, your registration form and it has a box there for donation, right? you make sure you add, your, you add your donation on there, isn't it? So that those who cannot afford it, for whatever reason, that they're able to have a scholarship so that they're able to come along. That's just one example of it. But, uh, of course, this passage is pushing us beyond just our own church community here. Uh, the Macedonian Christians and, and, and the Corinthians are being called to do this for people that they've never met, who live thousands of kilometres away. I mean, how could we use our resources here at SMAC 1 to be able to help our Nepali brothers and sisters, or the BM and Iban congregations that we have here, or to help uh, poor Christians in other parts of this country, uh, or other parts of the world, in fact. Uh, we have a tremendous opportunity, isn't it, to do wonderful good to our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. And in fact, God has designed it that way so that if we have a surplus, that they actually need it. And we have an opportunity to bless them. Now, Paul illustrates this, uh, this equality of supply with a quotation from Exodus 16, which was our uh, Old Testament reading. It says in verse uh, 15 there, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Uh, in Exodus 16, the people had to go out and collect, uh, collect manna. Uh, some people gathered more, some people gathered less, depending on how many in the house. But when they all added it all up, there was enough for everyone. So if one person uh, collected too much, uh, they couldn't keep it, could they? Because if they tried to keep it till the next day, then the worms would eat it up. Uh, the system uh, forced them, I guess, 
that if they did collect a surplus for whatever reason, then they'd have to give it to their brother or sister who didn't have, didn't have enough. Some collected more, some collected less, but everyone had enough because God provided sufficient for everyone. And so let us put it this way. God has provided our church with all the money it needs. Sure, some have more, some have less. But the expectation is that those who have more will give it to those who don't. The same applies to the wider church as well, isn't it? God has given just enough money to go around all the churches. Well, I uh, suspect I've said uh, enough things today that have uh, made us all uh, uh, incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) And I do hope that we'll be able to talk about these things over community lunch uh, today. We don't just come here to hear a sermon, do we? We need to to work on these things together and apply them together as we talk to one another. So I do hope that you will stay over lunch and you'll maybe uh, throw around some of these ideas and maybe some of the, the, the encouragements that you've had from this passage and some of the challenges as well. But as we, as we conclude, let us reflect again on, on the grace of our Lord Jesus. He gave his life for us. He gave that perfect example of self-giving love. And so that means that the, the true test of whether we have really embraced the gospel of grace or not is what we do with our money. God has given us the grace of giving And so what does our bank statement say about our faith? What does our church budget say about the health of our church? We're to respond freely to God's grace in joyful, generous, sacrificial generosity to our brothers and sisters who are in need. Now, I might encourage you to go home uh, today and uh, draw up your own little personal budget if you haven't done that before. Uh, what, just think, what do I spend all my money on? Uh, you can divide it up into two columns. What do I actually need? And what are things that I, what things are just wants? And once you've uh, done that and you've worked out what your surplus is compared to your income, why don't you think about how you can give radically and sacrificially given your current circumstances. Now, for some of us, that might mean 10%, giving 10%. Some might that mean 20%, 30%, 40%. Others, it might mean 5%. I don't know. It depends on your situation uh, in life. But have a think. What's it going to look like for me to be a, a generous and joyful giver? And, and maybe that you can think of other ways to free up even more money that, that you can give. Because often what we put in the needs column is actually in the wants column, isn't it? Uh, I mean, could I buy a second-hand car or phone instead of a new one? Uh, Could I stop my tuition classes and teach my own kids, clean my own house instead of uh, getting someone else to do it? Could I travel in Malaysia on my holidays instead of going overseas? Could I reduce the amount I spend on expensive restaurants? Could I go for a walk instead of going to the movies? Could I donate my clothes, my baby toys, my computer to someone in need? Could I postpone the renovations or cancel them? Uh, I mean, you could think of a million uh, uh, ways. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to enjoy things. It's not not that the rich have to become the poor, you see. But we're thinking here, if, if if Christ has given everything for me in response, how can I be radically and joyfully generous? Uh, to other people.
None of those are things on that list is meant to be some legalistic rule that we have to follow. The Macedonians begged to give and Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for us. Well, are we going to be a community of grace? A community who constantly are looking for ways to, to love and serve one another, to, to sacrificially use our resources to care for one another, just as Jesus has done for us. Let's talk about that over community uh, lunch a bit later. But for now, let's uh, turn to God in prayer. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Our Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you so much for the grace of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he gave up everything for us, that he left the glories of heaven and experienced the shame and contempt of life on earth so that he might bear our sins and bring us forgiveness and reconciliation to you. Father, we pray that uh, this, uh, this grace that you have shown us may not just be head knowledge, but it may transform our hearts so that we might be radically joyful, sacrificial in our giving towards other people. And Father, we pray that you would use all these, all these resources to be binding us together as a one community, one family in Christ. And so that you might be glorified in all things. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.